welcome to A Life More Wild. I'm Christopher Wilson-Ells from Canopy and Stars, and this is our podcast taking you into the great outdoors, helping you connect with nature. Later on, we'll be talking to a woman who ditched corporate communications and climbed a pretty steep learning curve to become a farmer and conservationist. But first, we're exploring the wonders of the woods with conservationist, writer and Springwatch TV presenter Megan McCubbin. Okay, the blackbirds are going crazy. Um, You can hear a robin over this way. A sparrow's just landed over there. She's taking us on a walk to tell us about growing up completely surrounded by nature and how to find incredible things on your very own doorstep. Every time you step out your front door is a different experience. You can go outside a hundred times in the same location, but you'll never see the same thing twice. And I think if there was ever a silver lining to come from the absolute tragedy and horrific year that we've all been through, it was the fact that we have reconnected with the environment around us. My name's Megan McCubbin and I'm a zoologist and wildlife TV presenter and I'm currently stood in the middle of some mature woodland in the New Forest quite close to Marchwood. You can hear the birds singing, it's not the brightest of days, it's quite a lot of cloud cover, quite a bit of rain, but the birds are still singing their little hearts out and it's a beautiful place, there's lots of different habitat here, so it supports a whole breadth of different biodiversity and it's just filled with life and it can't get much better than that. One of my favourite things about this location is the fact that there's a breeding tawny owl pair. They have become my absolute obsession over the last couple months as they've found their nest box and we've watched the adults go in and then the female disappeared and when that happens you know that she is sitting on eggs and the male is coming in at the same time every night and I was having to sit quite quietly because he's relatively timid but he was coming in to provision her with mice and all the other food that he was finding out on about so I've been watching them grow every kind of day or so and now I'm really excited because the female's been pushed out of the nest because the chicks are so big so any day now there should be some very fluffy very adorable tawny chicks and I haven't checked on them in a while so I think we should go over there and see what's going on. It's uh, always fun because you can often hear the male call first at night and then you know which direction he's coming in from. And then the female replies and you get often this twit-twoo sound which is iconic for owls. And it's actually the male and female duetting. So what happens is the female goes the twit and then the male goes the woo. Essentially, the way that I always remember it, because it can be quite hard, the male is trying to woo the female. So the male is then going the woo at the end, but the female is then going the twit at the beginning. So it's a, a beautiful kind of iconic thing between two individuals. The twit twit isn't actually given out by one. So if we come around this way, so often he comes in from the right-hand side and flies in from this wooded area, which is really dense, and there's lots of small rodents there and flies into the nest box, which is just under this tree over here. It's actually got a lot more leafy since I came here last. It makes things slightly more challenging to see because obviously it's springtime, summer, so the leaves are coming out, which is absolutely beautiful, but it does make um, chicks harder to see when, when all the branches come out. But they're slightly smaller than the adults, of course, but they are currently, hopefully, all nesting away in this box, all probably quite warm in there by the sounds of it. I quite like to be in, in that box myself. <laughs> but yeah, any day now, I've got everything crossed. There's going to be some tawny chicks, and it doesn't get much cuter than that. Tawny owls are one of my favourite bird species. And they're iconic. You know, when you go to bed and you 
lay your head down. I mean, I always listen out for my tawny owls and it really kind of calms me down and lets me kind of sleep nicely because I know my owls are out there and they're doing good. So one of my uh, favourite spaces just to sit and watch is the local river, which we can head over to this way. It brings in so many different types of life that otherwise just wouldn't be here. Oh, look, we've got a bullfinch, male bullfinch. That's nice. There's been a lot of rain recently, so um, the river, I have to say, the water line has massively gone up. It's uh, overflowing. It's really, really big, but... Um, you know, it's good, we needed a bit of rainwater, so hopefully it will kind of encourage some more biodiversity. So one of my favorite river visitors at the moment, which I haven't got visual confirmation of yet, but there is evidence. So I've got two dogs called Sid and Nancy, and they've got the finest noses to sniff out absolutely anything and everything. And, um, Sid came back very proud of himself because he'd found half an eel that he'd picked up from quite close to the river. And looking at the details of this eel, it looked like Sid definitely hadn't caught an eel and, and eaten half of it. We think an otter probably caught this eel because of just the way that the kind of the teeth mark is in the flesh. But it was the most exciting thing because if otters are in this river, you know, they've really kind of bounced back from an animal which was really facing it being locally extinct in the UK. They are now in every county, we believe. And that's really important. They're an indicator species. We know that if we have otters, an apex predator, then ultimately our freshwater ecosystems are healthy. And that's what we really do need. And I hope to see kind of a lot more of them. But I might have to lay out some trail cameras to confirm of an otter's presence, perhaps. But until then... I don't know, it's speculation, but that's part of the fun of wildlife. You don't always have to see it to be excited by it. You don't always have to visually get a glimpse, you know, by looking in the mud, for example. If I look down at my feet now, well, I can see no footprints, but often when it's been raining, you know, the evidence that animals leave behind is equally important. You know, if you see a fox footprint or a badger footprint, I get so excited, but you can look out for poo as well. I know, you know, people always kind of scrunch their nose up at poo, but it has so much information in it and it really tells you a lot about who's around. So it's equally important, you know, particularly for animals that are sensitive or are nervous. It's good to look down and look for the evidence of them as well. This river here is like this runway for bats because of course water systems attract insects. So when I stand here with my bat detector at night, we get noctules, um, soprano pripistrales, all flying over, collecting these insects. And using echolocation, they emit these sonar clicks out into the environment. These clicks then spread out and they bounce off objects, whether that's a tree or vegetation or sometimes even a caterpillar. And it will bounce back and they'll be able to almost see their environment through these sonar clicks. So bats are very skilled at hunting insects so things like you know mosquitoes or those caterpillars so it's amazing that such a small animal can produce this superpower in a sense it's always recommended that you should spend at least two hours of your time outdoors per week to increase your mental health and it's actually less about the amount of time you spend outside and more about something called nature connectedness. And there's lots of science at the moment, which I have to say is really exciting. And I always say to people, you can go outside and you can listen, but you might not hear. You could go outside and you can see, but you might not be watching. 
So I always say, you know, stop in your tracks. Walking is great, of course, it helps our physical health, but stop and really engage with what's around you because that's when, you know, right now, listen. Okay, the blackbirds are going crazy. Um, you can hear a robin over this way. A sparrow's just landed over there. And if I continue talking throughout that period of time, that wouldn't be song or a sight that I was really seeing and watching because I would have missed it. So it's really important that we connect with exactly what is in our own landscape, but just staying still, that's really important. And that's something that I've tried doing throughout the course of my life, I suppose. Um, so I met my stepdad, Chris Packham, when I was two years old. And at that point, he was presenting the Really Wild show and always traveling around the world, filming wonderful wildlife in the most amazing places with the most amazing people. And when I met him, it just opened my eyes, I suppose, to that wildlife. And I was very fortunate that wherever there was a job where he could take me, then I was there with him. So um, I think my love for wildlife kind of stemmed from then. I mean, my house when I was younger was, you know, very odd probably by most people's terms. Our downstairs bathroom was this kind of rehabilitation room. So I'd get in from school, open the door, and there'd be a barn owl sat on the toilet. Or I'd go up to my bedroom and... You know, there would be a new addition to my wildlife that I had in my bedroom. So I had praying mantises, I had tortoise, I had cockroaches. I had all the cutesy, fluffy stuff as well. You know, I had the rabbits and the gerbils and the guinea pigs and the poodles. Um, but I also had the more unusual species, you could say. So wildlife was in the house. It was outside of the house. It was everywhere we went. And um, it kind of just ignited this lifelong passion, I suppose, because young people always have that passion and that interest. It's just about kind of maintaining it um, and it's about harboring that connection and fostering it along the way oh male orange tip butterfly here landing on some lavender you can see they're kind of going around to different bluebells here they've got the most amazing sense where they're able to essentially feel before they land on the flowers well particularly more so bees and butterflies they're able to feel sense exactly how much pollen is in there so they won't waste their energy on something that's not for the pollen which is why you see them hovering and moving around. One of my favourite stories has to be the fact that hair streak butterflies have something called wing hearts in their wings. And this is something which utterly blew my mind. For a long time, we used to think that they were lifeless structures, butterfly wings. But that is far from the case. So what actually happens is, you know, this butterfly wing structure is a living tissue. It's got so much going on in this tiny, really thin, beautiful wing. Um, Hemolymph, which is the equivalent of blood for insects, is pumped round for thermoregulation. So essentially, they've got hearts in their wings pumping round this fluid to keep their temperature stable so that they don't dry out or so that they don't get too hot or cold. So what an amazing thing, you know, when next time you're looking at a butterfly, who knows what could be going on? And every time, you know, something like this comes up, I'm just jumping up and down because what a thing. Butterflies have hearts in their wings. I mean, come on, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? just uh, heading out of this garden area now into the actual reserve of the new forest into a field and there's lots of ponies here grazing away so walking around the edge of the field and going to actually a really special site it's one that we can't delve too far into because there's a very sensitive bird there there's nesting curly so we have to keep kind of far away but it's still nice to go and stand on the edge and 
just is common sense really isn't it if you have a species which is in decline then try and give it as much space as feasibly possible it's so important that we engage in the beauty of nature and learn to love it for what it is but it's equally as important that we talk about those difficult issues you know that we talk about those declines you know we say for example with the nightingale that it's declined more than 90 percent in the last 50 years we have to enjoy its beauty and you know fall in love with it through that but we can't ignore the scary and hard-hitting facts um, and I always say to people, you know, ignorance is no longer bliss because we can't turn our backs on it any longer. Yes, it's hard and it's not always easy hearing about decline after decline, you know, bad policy after bad policy. Um, and there's two things that you can do about that. Number one, you can let it get you down. And when that happens, it's really hard to pull yourself up. Trust me, I know, because sometimes it does get me down and I find it hard to pull myself back up. Um, but then there's option number two. So when I see something that really upsets me or something I think is just so unbelievably wrong, I think to myself, okay, yes, that is really bad. But what can I do tomorrow that's different from today to make that change? Like, can I wake up in the morning and help a campaign? Can I walk instead of drive? Can I have a plant-based meal? Those individual actions make such a difference. You know, a lot of people say to me, oh, I'm just one person, it doesn't matter what I do. And I think that that's the most damaging mindset that anybody could have. Because actually, you know, it's only ever been one person that's made a difference. Look at Greta Thunberg, for example. She's a young Swedish girl that sat outside her school to demand for better climate action. And look at the movement that she started. She's just one person and she's caused a tidal wave. We can all do something different tomorrow than we did today. You know, those small steps, they might be small, but they're all equally as important and you are contributing to something really big by doing that. Because if every person does that, if everybody had that same attitude to wake up tomorrow and do something differently, the world would be such a brighter place. Megan McCubbin, in the corner of the new forest where the self-isolating bird club took flight. Now we've all had the dream of ditching our jobs and going to live off the land, but there always seems to be something stopping us. Sarah Broadbent took the plunge, trading corporate communications in London for a life of conservation and farming in Sussex. First off, just paint us a little bit of a picture. Okay, so Swallowtail Hill is right in the bottom corner of uh, England. We are six miles outside of Rye in East Sussex and we are 40 acres of privately owned nature reserve. And how did you end up there? Christopher, my husband, uh, began the conservation project Swallowtail Hill 30 years ago. Um, At the time, it was a little farmhouse with a little bit of back garden and it was his start point for understanding and learning about conservation but it was his wake-up call to, to needing change for the planet for the better. And as he learned more about conservation and wanting to put his stamp on this little part of the countryside, it quickly became something bigger than he could imagine. And as bits of farmland in the area that were adjacent to, to the, the cottage and the garden became available, uh, he patched them on 
and eventually established us as a as a 40 acre reserve and it covers grassland meadowland wet meadow and coppice woodland and that's how it began really and then i came on the scene a little later on um and it was quite a life shift for you as well wasn't it a total life shift prior to that (laughs) i i was a city dweller as well but we were we were at that kind of transition point of not really wanting to to live live in the city anymore. Um, our hearts were in the country. We spent every weekend here. We spent every holiday here, and we up sticks. We took two years to talk ourselves into it um, because it seemed like a really scary big deal at the time. Um, I think when you are rooted in in what it means to be kind of an an urban dweller uh you're you're scared you think you're going to miss all of these things yeah. that actually we never missed any of them all the things that we were worried really not about even darkest um, winter there's absolutely no regrets absolutely no regrets absolutely not and and i think um things like uh you know will we miss friends will friends drift away from us the opposite has happened because we've become a place that friends want to come and and visit and that was really why the glamping came about because we realized that so many of our friends were wanting to come and stay in this wonderful place and enjoy what we created um we felt well if they do then there must be more people that want that too and creating something here that afforded that space that pause in time for people who perhaps don't have back gardens of their own or are mostly living in a built-up environment and don't access the big outdoors very often um, it suddenly became a thing and we realized that we, we could be part of that and in doing so it would also secure the future of the farm and the conservation work that we do at the same time you must see people who come out and are just blown away and changed by it Totally. It's the families that come away and the children. Um, I can think of a family just recently, a, a, a young girl, she's probably eight or nine, wanted to encourage her family to have a day without electricity every week. <laughs> Which I think her mum her mum was a little bit alarmed at, at the thought of of but um but you know if we if we've instilled that kind of message in the next generation that they understand the importance of looking after the planet, then terrific. I'm I'm all for that for sure. Where do you even start? And coming even if I grew up in the countryside, I don't I wouldn't know how to take care of a goat. I mean what what was what was sort of day one when you moved? Uh I think I think what has helped me is that I've never been afraid of looking like a complete idiot and asking the, the, the stupid questions. So if I think back to the beginning and, and our first animals on the farm, um, I, I had no shame about taking a, a slightly off-coloured chicken with me to the vet and say, saying, look at this, help me please, and then rolling their eyes and thinking, I'm sure, oh, it's this daft woman from London again who has no idea about the countryside. Um, but you, you learn, you learn, and um, thank goodness for, for the for the internet. You know, if there, if there isn't a, a YouTube video about um, whatever symptom your goat has got this week, then really... <laughs> <laughs> you're stuffed but but mostly you, you know you can find you can find things everywhere and we have embraced the local knowledge i think i think that's the other thing to to that has been really important to us in our experience that when we moved down full time we never came with that mindset of this is how we do things because this is what we've read about in london and and we're going to put our stamp on the place here we did a lot of talking to local people we did a lot of listening to people um and understanding how things have been done in the area for generations and uh, what's the menagerie up to now so at the moment, we've got two donkeys. We've got one pig, Sue, who's 
a sweetheart. She's out sunbathing in in her field at the moment. We've got some pygmy goats. We've got our chickens, of course, um, and our, our idiots of family dogs. <laughs> but that's it. And some sheep, of course. <laughs> the sheep who who are a, an, a really important part of our wildflower grazing process. Without them, we couldn't do what we do. Well, how does that work then? Well, um, to 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 traditionally raise a wildflower meadow you need it grazed and you need it grazed by um, an animal who isn't going to uh, fertilize the ground too heavily so a cow's no good because there'll be too much rich fertilizer going on to to the soil and wildflowers need um, some fertilizer but not too much and um, you also need a creature who is light-footed enough not to poach the ground too much. So if you had horses on it, or again cows, they're, they're too heavy and too large-footed and you'd end up with too much mud and too much churn for, for the meadows to do their thing. So we have a flock of sheep um, of our own and then over winter when the grazing is really important in terms of re-establishing the meadow for the next year. We also have what's called keep sheep. So other people's sheep come and graze our land um, across the winter season. And they they do exactly as, as we need. They graze down um, the, the, the grass and the plants and the seed passes through their system and passes out the other end and they tread it back in nicely with a light touch to fertilise the ground and re-sow the seed for us. So it is a perfect cycle uh, of re-establishing the meadow every year. Okay, so obviously you've got a lot going on. Talk us through your average day. Day usually begins uh, at six. There's a round of uh, feeding animals, mucking out animals, filling buckets with water. Um, and to be honest, this time of year, that's a pleasure because today, for example, there's a beautiful blue sky of amazing bird song here on the farm. So that, that's my soundtrack when I'm outside feeding the animals, the the birds following following me around and literally i mean we've got some very tame little robins that that fly from tree to tree following me around with my bucket as i'm feeding the animals and i think they just think i'm some kind of takeaway service that they they pick up all the bits that i drop along the way um so yes, animal feeding first, uh, and then after our breakfast, it's a it's a long dog walk, the first dog walk of the day. And as we go around, we're looking at what's what needs uh, attending to, what might need some assistance, um, and that could be anything from uh, the mundane like. Uh, fences that are broken that need fixing or gates that need rehanging through to um, plants that that need some help so at the moment um, earlier in the year it was our planting season for trees and um, it's been too dry for them we had some rain the last couple of days but nowhere near enough so we're checking on saplings all of the time and it might mean that later in the day we have to go back around literally with a watering can um, and that that's quite time consuming walking from the nearest tap to to the wood and that's um, that takes us to mid morning, and then of course there there's there's the boring stuff. There is the the office stuff that needs doing. Um, so I'm I'm never stuck behind a desk for too long, thank goodness. So there's there's a repeat of everything in the afternoon. There's a second round of animal feeding. There's a second round of dog walks, and then of course we have guests to look after. So it's not it's never lost on me that the fact that I have the chance to spend so much of my day in this wonderful place outside. Um, you know, whenever I can, I'll I'll have my lunch outside, or I'll go and have a cup of tea outside, um, just so that I can um, enjoy more of what we've got to offer. Because it would seem a tragedy otherwise if I am working to create this special place for other people to stay, but then not not having not taking the time to enjoy it myself. Do you have a particular favourite time of year yourself? 
my biggest enjoyment about being um being where I am and living where I do now is noticing the change in the seasons. I think when I lived um, and worked in London, seasons can pass by almost without notice. I mean, yes, of course, you you can check the weather and you can feel the change in temperature. But if you're in a in a, a largely urban environment, a built up environment, you don't always notice things around you changing in increments. And when you're in the countryside, you do. And I love that. I love the the slow emergence from winter into spring. I love spring turning to summer. And again, ask me in the autumn, I'm going to tell you autumn's my favourite time of year. So I just love the turning of the seasons. I think it's there's something really... um, reassuring uh, that the world is still turning and 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 things move on and things change and you can see things in cycles happening and that happens with our own lives as well so you know i'm very big on the idea that across winter we kind of retreat a bit and um we nurture and we look after ourselves more inwardly and then in the warmer months we were able to explore and um be more energized and you know i'm sounding like a complete hippie now i'm aware of that but um (laughs) but those things are really important to me now and i think that i can see it with our guests as well that you know they come in the summertime they're coming for a different kind of experience to, to those who who come for um, some kind of cosy retreat in the middle of winter. Yeah, and you get to share it with all those people, which is amazing. Absolutely. That, to me, is the most rewarding part of my job, I think. I think, uh, well, last summer when we, we opened up to the first lockdown, um, we had people who um, cried when, when they got here and then apologised for it. But it was just because, simply because they were overwhelmed by the sense that they were suddenly, um, they had a weight lifted. They were, uh, it was important for them to be away from from the news for a bit, to feel um, removed from the kind of endless cycle of uh, busyness and anxiety that we were all tra- kind of trapped in for a very long while. And to suddenly have a little uh, pause of uh, a little bite-sized break that was freedom um, where they felt safe, where they felt comfortable, where they felt freedom um, was was really quite amazing to to see, um, and it felt a privilege to be to be part of that. Thanks for joining us for a life more wild. I hope Megan and Sarah between them have got you fired up for wildlife spotting on your doorstep, or even looking for a new doorstep altogether. You can find out more about what Megan's up to, or stay at Swallowtail Hill by following the links in the episode notes. Remember to join us on Instagram at Canopy and Stars, rate us wherever you find us, and hit the follow button on your podcast app for more episodes. Until next time, stay wild.